Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. It's a pleasure to welcome you here today, and a particular pleasure to welcome my friend uh, Eric Cohen. It is part of the Madison, uh, this lecture by uh, Eric is part of the Madison Program's lecture series on America's founding and future, a series that examines fundamental principles of American democracy and their applications to current social, political, and cultural issues. Eric Cohen is director of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Project on Biotechnology and, the American, and American Democracy, and he's also the editor and founder of The New Atlantis, a quarterly journal of technology, ethics, and politics. His essays and articles have appeared in such publications as The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, The Weekly Standard, The Public Interest, First Things, and Commentary. He is co-editor with William Crystal of The Future uh, Is Now, America Confronts the New Genetics. He also serves as a senior consultant to the President's Council on Bioethics. It's a real pleasure to welcome Eric uh, to Princeton. Please join me uh, in giving him a warm round of applause. Thanks very much. Let me start just by expressing my great gratitude to Robbie for inviting me here. Um, I have such a deep admiration for him, both his scholarship and his leadership in the public square on so many issues, um, and it's just a great honor to be a part of such a great program. I also want to say that it's nice to be out of Washington for a little while. Uh, feel free to grill me on any Washington subject you want in the Q&A, but uh, the privilege here, I think, is to think through some deeper and lasting questions, the kind of questions that lie beyond all of our political debates, um, and I hope we can think through some of those things today. Finally, just one quick caveat. If you came here looking for stock tips of any kind, you're not going to get them. Uh, and if you ask my wife who's here, you wouldn't want them. Um, <laughs> What I want to do is begin with a, a much bigger and more general question. What is the relationship between morality and commerce? Looking around today for an answer at the commercials on television, the stores in the mall, the culture of the workplace, is likely to leave any sane person bewildered. The spirit of modern capitalism is as varied as the souls of modern men. Virtually every type of morality is for sale, often in rapid succession. The cosmetic surgeon specializing in breast implants, the observant Jew rushing to finish work before sundown, sex stories on MTV and salvation stories at the movies, oil drilling corporations and embryo destroying startups, queer eye for the straight guy and NASCAR racing. Commerce captures the many edges of human life, if not quite the lowest and never quite the highest. It mostly involves decent men and women working hard to better themselves and provide for their families. But commerce also goes deep into the human gutter, often dragging many ordinary people along with it. And it nourishes and depends on more than average individuals, those with great ability and great power, those who build empires from scratch and remake the world with their visions. For most people, commerce is marked by the coming and going of anxiety, the anxieties of staying afloat or getting ahead in a dynamic economy, and the anxieties of consumption in a world of proliferating choices and proliferating needs. Commerce is delightful, decadent, decent, and depraved, depending on where you look or what you're up to. Perhaps the most striking segment of modern commerce today is the commerce of the body, including an oppressive array of new biotechnologies and new biological procedures. 
An hour spent watching network television will almost inevitably include multiple rounds of the following. An ad for impotence drugs. A reality show about cosmetic surgery. An ad for drugs that help depressed parents feel better and distracted children work harder. This is to say nothing of the endless commercials for cholesterol drugs, arthritis drugs, allergy drugs, commercials for low-carb foods or new lines of cosmetics, and commercials for baby-making clinics promising you a boy or a girl, it's your choice, guaranteed. It is clear that much of what we seek to buy involves improving and preserving the given body or ameliorating the discontents of the embodied mind. And if one looks ahead over the horizon to the biotechnologies of the future, improved mood and memory-altering drugs, embryo-based medicine, genetic muscle enhancements, new techniques for making babies, it is clear that the commerce of the body will only become more ambitious, more widespread, and more profound. Which raises a question. Is biocapitalism something new, bringing with it a new spirit and new dilemmas? Or is it simply the continuation of modern capitalism's promise to better our condition, to supply the things that we most demand? No doubt the answer is some combination of continuity and novelty. To think clearly about biotechnology and the spirit of capitalism, the subject of this lecture, we must see both what modern capitalism has always been and where modern capitalism is likely heading. To understand the new, we must begin with the old, with modern capitalism and its origins. Only then might we try to make sense of the new commerce of the body and its larger human meaning. From the beginning, the idea of modern capitalism was connected to various notions of the good life or different assessments of the best life possible for limited, selfish, and imperfect human beings. Morality and modern commerce were always inseparable, and the defense of commerce, just like the lament, was originally made in moral terms. By morality, I mean living well, both as individuals and as a society, with the permanent questions of being human. How do I face suffering and death? What are my obligations to my parents and children? Do the religious traditions of my birth still bind me? And how do I regard the piety or impiety of others? What are my obligations to the weak, the poor, the nasty, and the insane? What is the meaning of my sexual desires? Does the noble end I seek, saving a soul, curing the sick, freeing the oppressed, justify a given means to try to achieve it? Modern capitalism at its origins addressed these moral and existential questions, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. It did not offer or emerge from a single type of answer, but at least three different answers, which I want to discuss in turn. One is the spirit of God-seeking work embodied in early Protestantism. Second is the spirit of irreverent self-love embodied in Voltaire. And third is the worldly moderation embodied in Adam Smith. To be sure, typologies such as this one often distort as much as they clarify. History is messy and complex, and the history of capitalism is windy and tumultuous, with passionate defenders and savage critics and many unexpected turns. Nevertheless, the presence of these three different spirits is undeniable, and understanding their origins may help us to make sense of the spirit of capitalism today. But before I get to the typology, one quick and general observation. Morality is inextricably linked with our distinct character as embodied beings. Many of our deepest human obligations involve the attachments of the flesh, 
between parents and children, children and parents, husband and wife. And just as the attachments of the flesh bind us in ties of fidelity, the desires of the flesh sometimes lead us astray. Both the humanly excellent and the humanly sublime are also experiences of the flesh, whether the physical encounter of lovers, the grace of the dancer, the delight of seeing and knowing the realities of nature. And human misery involves the miseries of the flesh, sickness in old age, injury and deformity. We are biological beings from birth to death, both at our best and at our worst. Our moral and our mental life, our search for wisdom and our aspiration to virtue are inseparable from our being as bodies, rational, finite, hungering for meaning. Biology, morality, and commerce are invariably intertwined. Remembering this truth is crucial for understanding both the origins and the destiny of modern capitalism. Now let me turn to the three types, beginning with Protestantism. In the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Max Weber describes how a new idea of salvation, a new creed about the relationship between man and God, worldly life and otherworldly grace, unexpectedly initiated the age of modern capitalism. Now, it would be a vast oversimplification to say that there was a single Protestant Reformation. There were many cross-currents, as Weber describes. But two ideas in particular, Luther's idea of the calling and Calvin's idea of predestination, fundamentally altered the behavior of believing Christians and with it the trajectory of the modern West. Worldly work could now be understood in vocational terms. The fulfillment of worldly duties is under all circumstances, under all circumstances the only way to live acceptably to God, describes Weber. It and it alone is the will of God, and hence every legitimate calling has exactly the same worth in the sight of God. But only by combining this idea of the calling with the theology of predestination, that is, the belief that salvation comes by God's unfathomable grace alone, breathed into us at birth, did the spirit of capitalism find its paradoxical roots. For men could not live in practice or for long with a grace so mysterious or with the state of their eternal souls so uncertain. They wanted proof, proof to themselves, proof before others, and proof before God that I am indeed saved. This desire for proof gave believing Protestants an irrational will to work, with little interest in savoring the worldly fruits of their labors. The individual toiled instead as a sign of otherworldly salvation and in accordance as he saw it with a divinely chosen calling. Every detail of life was rationalized and perfected. Even the smallest sign of waywardness might be a sign of one's own unchosenness. Practical science was welcomed and mystical speculation discouraged. The result of such an ethic, according to Weber, was a magnificent increase in material wealth due largely to the accumulation of capital that came from producing so much and enjoying so little, from the combination of restless toil and ascetic self-denial. But the wealth produced as the outward fruit of man's piety threatened to undermine the inner commitment to God. As John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, declared, I fear wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. The Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally increase in pride and anger and the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. 
Is there no way to prevent this, this continual decay of pure religion? We ought not to prevent people from being diligent and frugal. We must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. That is, in effect, to grow rich. What way, then, can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way, and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace, and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Now, whether Weber is fully correct in explaining the historical connection between the Protestant ethic and the birth of capitalism, a complicated and much disputed question, he is surely corrected pointing us toward the relationship between other worldly aspirations and worldly activity. The self's desire for salvation and his belief that his labors were both commanded by God and signs of God's approval were instrumental in the birth of modern wealth. But over time, men sought more immediate and less demanding proof of their standing. They sought worldly happiness and recognition or simply the delights of progress itself more than a secure place in heaven. As Weber put it, the intensity of the search for the kingdom of God commenced gradually to pass over into sober economic virtue. The religious roots died out slowly, giving way to utilitarian worldliness. So through Protestantism, commerce was made a realm of grace. That over time, it was not God's grace alone or at all that men sought, but the grace of being a self-made man, the grace that was formed by one's own labors or secured by one's own ingenuity, not bestowed as a divine gift and obligation. Before Protestantism, salvation was largely set apart from or above the realm of commerce, in the sacraments, the monastery, or the Sabbath. The Protestantism weakened this separation, directing men, if somewhat unintentionally, to see the labors of life as proof of salvation and eventually as its very source. But sooner or later, the self-made man confronts the limits of his own self-made grace. He is struck by misfortune or boredom or mortality itself. His grace is haunted and incomplete. And he is left to describe why his self-making is good, why it is justified, once its inherent pleasures wear off. The religious roots of commerce continue to lurk as ghosts within modern capitalism, leaving citizens looking for a way out of Weber's iron cage or pretending they are not in it at all or living as comfortably as they can while they are there. We are, to this day, still haunted by the salvation that modern commerce once seemed to promise and still hunting after the kinds of salvation it might yet give us again, but this time in the flesh. For Voltaire, part two of our story, the delights of the flesh were worth celebrating, and he admired commerce precisely for its capacity to promote worldly goods through freedom and exchange. Where the Protestant ethic prized self-denial, Voltaire celebrated self-love. And where the Protestant believer labored out of devotion to a saving God, Voltaire celebrated commerce for making such pious devotions irrelevant. Religionists may rail in vain, he wrote. I own I like this age profane. He liked its physical comforts and the room it afforded for his playful worldly mind. He led a life of wild speculation, filled with financial schemes that would have made the managers of Enron proud, and he praised the London Exchange as a place where the only infidels were those who went bankrupt. As Jerry Muller describes in his book, The Mind in the Market, 
The real enemy for Voltaire was religious enthusiasm, which led men to slit each other's throats over archaic and trivial superstitions. Here, Voltaire is the prophet of the prophet motive, Muller describes. Compared to the competitive quest for salvation, the quest for wealth is more likely to make men peaceful and content. Compared to the altruistic crusade of forcibly saving one's neighbor's soul, even if it leaves his body in ruins, the pursuit of wealth is a potentially more peaceable pursuit, and one that leaves one's neighbor content. But it was not just religious conflict that, va- that Voltaire aboard, but the pious man's devotion to a false salvation, his idealization of a wretched past at the cost of making a better future. In a poem with a fitting title, The Worldling, Voltaire pays tribute to the wonders of his age, the needful superfluous things, the luxury and pleasures. He mocks Adam and Eve for the wretchedness of their flesh, the dirty ground they slept in, the tasteless food they ate all in language worth quoting. My fruit-eating first father say, in Eden how rolled time away, did you work for the human race and clasped Dame, aim, clasped Dame Eve with close embrace? Own that your nails you could not pare, and that you wore disordered hair, that you were swarthy in complexion, and that your amorous affection had very little better in it than downright animal instincts. Both weary of the marriage yoke, you supped each night beneath an oak, on millet, water, and on mast, and having finished your repast, on the ground you were forced to lie, exposed to the inclement sky. Such, in the state of simple nature, is man, a helpless, wretched creature. Eve, in other words, could use a trip to the perfume counter in the salon, perhaps even plastic surgery. To embrace such a wretched creature is to be nothing more than an animal. Beyond the flesh, Voltaire praises the artists and the architects, the real makers of grace as he saw it. He delights in what is visible to the eye inside rich golden frames, not what is knowable to the soul oriented toward heaven. The poem ends with Voltaire's fitting words of self-praise. Terrestrial paradise is where I am. He is a worldling and nothing more living in a paradise of self-love and happy commerce, one that he desperately hopes to sustain, his own decaying flesh be damned. Adam Smith, you might say, offered a more moderate vision. Between the Protestant quest for otherworldly salvation and Voltaire's irreverent delight in the luxuries of the flesh. With Voltaire, he believed that an alternative needed to be found to the wars of religious piety and that state-regulated salvation was a recipe for tyranny and slaughter. And yet he did not see religion itself as an enemy, and he took for granted, as Irving Kristol and others have argued, the habit-forming effects of traditional institutions like church and family. Without the Protestant ethic, it is unlikely that Smith's practical vision would have gotten off the ground. And yet Smith did not offer a commerce of salvation, worldly or otherworldly, but a commerce of progress, one that expanded man's liberty and gradually improved his condition. It was a sober and practical vision for sober and practical men. He was interested in building a decent society by taking seriously both man's rational self-interest and his capacity for self-estraint, both his natural acquisitiveness and his latent civility. And he sought a society that improved the condition of all willing individuals, not simply a society where the strong triumphed over the weak 
or where the wealthy pursued life's niceties while the poor remained in a condition of permanent desperation. Smith, in other words, sought to build a future that worked, and by obvious accounts, he has succeeded tremendously. We largely live in the world he built, with souls still largely shaped by his vision and a politics still informed by his realism about the limits of radically remaking the human condition by conscious design. Smith's system of natural liberty worked in two basic ways. First, it explained how the natural desire for self-improvement and the range of natural human capacities could cohere to produce a prosperous economic system one in which individuals responded to the changing needs of the market and lived with the freedom and responsibility to better their condition according to their own lights. In this way, the desire for private profit could serve the public interest, and the largely free market could produce an organic order from below, one impossible to create from above. Second, Smith showed how commercial life could have a civilizing effect on acquisitive individuals who needed to work hard and tolerate others in order to prosper. To be sure, the commercial society does not stamp out selfishness or spread the gospel of brotherly love. But it does channel self-interest and promote civil society among individuals with very different backgrounds and very different tastes. And it creates the wealth necessary for somewhat higher aspirations, if not necessarily the desire to pursue them. In other words, Smith believed an economic system should be judged in moral terms, judged for the kind of people it produces and the way of life it allows to flourish. He was not blind to capitalism's shortcomings, including the rise of scheming businessmen moved only by greed and devoid of conscience, and the existence of laborers made dull and brutish by performing a few simple functions without end. But the problems of greed, nastiness, and stupidity were hardly unique to modern commercial life. And in many ways, they were much worse in pre-capitalist societies. The problem, of course, was and remains the limits of human nature itself. A social system at its best could promote virtues and curb vices, not make average men into philosophers or saints. The question for us, the heirs to Smith's vision, is whether commercial society still achieves these limited goods, promoting virtue and curbing vice. And if not, or not entirely, where does it go wrong, and are there really any viable alternatives? We must return to the question with which we began. What is the relationship between morality and commerce with the added perspective of a few centuries? In 1991, with the last vestiges of communism crumbling and the Cold War ending, Irving Kristol warned that the greatest threats to a capitalist future were spiritual and cultural. In a sense, he said, it is all Adam Smith's fault. That amiable, decent genius could not imagine a world where traditional moral certainties could be effectively challenged and repudiated. Bourgeois society is his legacy for good and ill, for good in that it is produced through the market economy a world prosperous beyond all previous imaginings, including socialist imaginings. For ill in that this world, with every passing decade, has become ever more spiritually impoverished. Much has happened since Smith's time to change the character of commercial society. The political failure of the French Revolution with its promise of utopia and its reign of terror. The coming of the industrial age with its new kinds of work and new possibilities for consumption. 
a series of major world wars which ended European imperialism and spawned a new nihilism and a restless search for new gods, the defeat of Hitler's Germany with its example of man's capacity for inhumanity to man, the rise of communism with its promise of heaven on earth and its grim tyrannical realities, the many technological innovations in energy, biology, communications, and travel, the triumph of the sexual revolution and the rise of the entertainment culture, the globalization of the economy and the final collapse of socialism, the rise of radical Islam and new fears of mass terror. These twists and turns of history have given rise to new forms of discontent with commercial life, many of them variations on old themes, and many of them outgrowths of Smith's originally under, original underestimation of man's existential demands. In the end, Smith's error was his lack of eschatological realism. Man is not simply an average being who seeks to improve in material ways. He is also a fallen being who yearns to be saved or transforms, or else or who yearns to be saved or transformed, or else believes he is uniquely qualified to save and transform others. And while the commerce of progress looks pretty impressive through the eyes of history, and looks pretty good to most Americans most of the time, it is not, in the end, existentially sufficient. Human life is filled with anxiety, calamity, obligation, temptation, dependence, and disaster. The stock market crashes that are blips in economic history have their existential equivalents in disease, war, joblessness, and divorce, the periodic and ultimately final downturns of human life. And so Adam Smith's world, a great success, is still haunted by the Protestant desire for otherworldly grace and by Voltaire's desire for a terrestrial paradise. We demand that progress offer salvation, what socialism once promised and biotechnology may promise in the future. Or we demand that progress be abandoned entirely in the name of salvation, whether soberly by those who seek to preserve sacred islands in a profane sea or radically by extremists who seek to dismantle modern life altogether. And here, I think, is where things get a bit interesting, where we can begin to see not only where we've come from, but where we might be going. The quest for salvation can either go with the grain or against the grain of modern commercial society. Modern science, especially modern biological science, has long gone with the grain, seeking useful inventions, practical advances, the relief of man's estate through a growing mastery of nature's laws and human biology. Technology has long been the art of self-improvement, and commercial society has long been inseparable from the creation and dissemination of new technological powers. To put it in philosophical terms, the implementation of Francis Bacon's vision has rarely shocked or troubled the Smithian mind. By contrast, modernist culture in art, literature, mores, and manners, has largely gone against the grain of modern commercial society. It saw the bourgeois world as boring, repressed, and unsatisfying, a world of one-dimensional men, hungry for property, ruled by old-fashioned values left over from outdated religions. Modernism sought a life of the spirit and a life of immodesty, a life without limits, sexual or otherwise. It saw the mass of men as automatons, and it saw mass society as guilty for the degradation of both nature and culture. And yet it also imagined that man himself was a creature without shame, a being beyond sin. 
The counterculture believed that alienation was a problem of history, not a condition of our nature. This attitude was epitomized in the student radicals of the 1960s with their call for the liberation of the body from all, tab- from all old taboos and the drama of vicious indictments of men and childish illusions about man. Back then, it seemed as though the culture of technology and the counterculture were mortal enemies. It was the machine versus the spirit, Dionysian feeling versus rational investigation, gradual progress versus immediate liberation. And of course, in some ways, they were and still remain enemies. But perhaps, if we think a little further, not in the most important ways. For it may be that the peculiarities of our own recent history mask a deeper connection between the counterculture and the culture of modern technology, a connection grounded in their shared belief that human limits should be overcome, taboos are anathema, and human shame is an illusion. Both cultures believe that no knowledge or no experience should be off-limits, and that death is an unfair or unnecessary sentence to be overcome by science or mocked artistically into submission. Both are willing to go where modest men never went before, at least not in public. Let me make this point with a rather unpleasant example. It's an R-rated example. So if there are kids in the room, they should... Within a few days of one another, I recently came upon the following two stories. Story number one was in The New Yorker, and it was about a series of new works of art. One of these pieces of art was a grotesque sculpture, consisting of a number of naked children connected to one another in the flesh with penises as noses. Story number two was in The Washington Post. It was about a promising new technique of assisted reproduction which allows women to remove a piece of their uterus, freeze it indefinitely, and implant it into their arm as a source of eggs whenever they might decide to have children. Now, I suspect that most scientists would find the penis-faced statue appalling, though they might defend the right to produce it as freedom of expression akin to their own freedom of research. But the artists, I suspect, would admire the scientists' biological transgression, the splicing of reproductive organs out of their normal context, the making public of one's private parts. And even if the scientists reject such works of art as absurdities, modern biotechnology, and much else about modern commerce, has benefited greatly from the triumph of postmodern culture. For it was the radicals of the 1960s that cleared away the very taboos of the body that would have run up against the newest possibilities of modern biotechnology. Can we imagine the commerce of the body today, or even the science that underlies it, without the prior triumph of the culture of immodesty? Would there have been terrain scientists and their investors would have feared to go if the counterculture hadn't gone there first? Could it be that scientific rationalism and postmodern irrationality have more in common than it once seemed? The genius of commerce is that it tames remarkable things. It makes past transgressions seem remarkably normal. What shocks the parents bores the children, both in culture and in science. Living together before marriage, test tube babies, that's yesterday's news. But to understand the human meaning of capitalism today, especially the new commerce of the body, we need to recover the capacity to marvel and to shudder, 
and the capacity to see why much of what seems ordinary today is in fact extraordinary. Only with such eyes can we fathom what the new commerce of the body really means. That it means something significant should be clear. States across the country are clamoring to build new bioparks, seeing biotechnology as the next great source of modern wealth, the economic revolution still to come. The conquest of the body and the taming of the psyche are seen by many as the final human goods, the last act in the modern drama of self-improvement and growing autonomy. At the same time, there is at least some public debate about the moral meaning of biocapitalism. The possibilities still seem remarkable to some of us, and occasionally even disquieting. Indeed, we can already imagine a future where cosmetic surgery is as common as orthodontics, where mood-altering drugs are a mass phenomenon, like vitamins or painkillers for the soul, where people sell their deceased loved ones' organs, where 10 to 15% of women reproduce using in vitro fertilization, screening their embryos in advance for sex, height, and other genetic characteristics, and where sick patients harvest embryonic clones of themselves as a source of life-saving stem cells. And we are left to wonder, what will it be like to live in such a world, to raise a family in such a world, to work in such a world, to invest money in such a world? What will the relationship be between biotechnology, morality, and commerce? Now, to be sure, most biotechnology today is humanly admirable. It is a continuation of bourgeois progress, as we have long noted, whose only negative effect is raising expectations and thus raising the stakes of potential calamity. But there are also reasons to believe that the new commerce of the body is far removed from Smith's sober vision, that the rival ghosts of Protestantism and Voltaire are lurking within it, leading us variously into folly, decadence, and occasional depravity. To get at this puzzle, I want to explore in the final part of my talk five dimensions of the commerce of the body, taking some everyday and obvious examples and trying to probe their deeper human meaning. The first example I call the betrayal of the child. By now, the selling of one's eggs or sperm to others who wish to produce a child is commonplace. I suspect at some point there have been advertisements in the Princeton newspaper offering substantial sums of money, $25,000, $50,000, for an Ivy League egg donor with high SAT scores. There are already numerous companies that specialize in brokering eggs, often catering to very strange and particular tastes. A few days ago, a law student friend of mine received the following solicitation in the mail. Dear potential egg donor, the Genetics and IVF Institute is looking for healthy, college-educated, ethnically diverse women between the ages of 21 and 32 to assist in fertile couples by becoming an anonymous egg donor. You will be adequately compensated for each cycle you complete, beginning at $5,000 and going up to $45,000. Please help an infertile couple experience the joy and fulfillment of parenthood. Now, in market terms, this potential transaction makes perfect sense matching a willing seller and a willing buyer. Both parties get what they want, tuition money, the seeds of a new child, and no one is coerced into anything. But what we might pause to ask is the human meaning of what is happening. One couple desperately seeks a child of their own, a child biologically related to the father genetically and to the mother by pregnancy. This is why, after all, IVF came into existence in the first place, 
because the infertile seek not just a child to raise, but a child of their own, flesh of their flesh. But to make this possible in some cases, they need a seller who is willing to abandon his or her own biological child, willing to be an anonymous donor, willing never to set eyes upon the child that is flesh of their flesh. The buyers who desperately want a biological child need a seller who sees having a biological child as no big deal. In market terms, again, this makes sense, a case of two parties valuing different commodities differently. But in human terms, it means finding a seller who denies the very human longing that the buyer wishes to act upon. It requires a seller who is willing, in a way, to betray his or her own flesh, not out of desperation, but for a price. The second example I call the shaming of the father. By now, impotence drugs are common fare among the most popular commercials on television. One of them stars the former Chicago Bears coach, Mike Ditka, once the consummate tough guy who takes the Levitra challenge to, quote, stay in the game. Now, Coach Ditka is apparently very comfortable with his illness and perhaps proud of his continued desire for virility. He flaunts his nakedness, the loss of his powers, the hunger for his powers, for all the world to see, including his children. Now consider another story, the story of Noah in the book of Genesis, naked in his tent, and the story of his sons who so revere their father that they do not look upon him. They walk backward to him and cover him with their cloak. As Leon Cass describes, they intuitively understand that were they to see with their own eyes their father's nakedness, their family order would be permanently altered. By protecting Noah's dignity and authority, they safeguard their own capacity to exercise paternal authority in the future. They knowingly leave some things in the dark without pressing back to the naked truth about temporal beginnings or ultimate origins. Even in, even in his old age, they see their father as a giant, the source of their very being. Today, by contrast, we leave nothing in the dark, and we strip down every giant. Both proper pride and proper shame are thrown into the wind. While Coach Ditka might see such drugs precisely in the might, might, while Coach Ditka, excuse me, while Coach Ditka might seek such drugs precisely in the name of his manliness, it is precisely his manliness that is compromised. By trying to quote stay in the game. He loses the majesty that a dignified old man should command of those beneath him. Instead, he lays out his nakedness for all the world to see, including the sons who now cannot help but shame him. In his quest for potency, he reveals his ultimate dependence, with no cloak to preserve any ennobling illusions. Third example is the modern birthmark. By now, the sexualization of popular culture is taken for granted, as is the voyeurism of television. Coming next month on Fox, of course, is a new reality show called The Swan, which takes a score of average-looking women, sends them to a team of cosmetic surgeons who remake their appearance under the knife, and then puts these refurbished ladies on stage to decide who is the most beautiful to decide which ugly duckling is now the swan. Now, already cosmetic surgery is no longer simply the province of actors in Hollywood and politicians in Washington. 
It is becoming, slowly but steadily, a more mass phenomenon, and perhaps eventually a middle-class phenomenon. Physical beauty is no longer a gift, but an artifact. Aging is no longer accepted gracefully, but fought back with the knife. Imperfection will one day become intolerable. Like Georgina and Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Birthmark, we subject ourselves to technicians of the body in the hope of being loved or in the hope of making bystanders into worshipers of our flesh. And the question is, why not? Beauty is never an achievement, after all, but a gift of nature. Why does it matter whether the giver of the gift is God, the gods, or the master surgeon? What is really lost in removing this year's imperfections? The trouble, of course, is next year's imperfections. And the trouble is that our new look will inevitably change all our pre-surgery relations. To our parents, perhaps it will be a partial indictment of their own appearance. To our spouse, perhaps it will be an admission that I was not beautiful enough then. To our children, perhaps it will be a warning that they too might need surgery someday. And so even as we remake the flesh in accordance with our will, we cannot escape the attachments of the flesh that we did not will, the attachments to our parents and the attachments to our children. We have the swan's face, but the ugly, but the ugly duckling's family. Fourth, the broken soul. By now, commercials for mood-altering drugs are commonplace, and the use of such drugs has skyrocketed in the last decade, from distracted two-year-olds in preschool to the depressed elderly in nursing homes to everyone else in between. At another Ivy League school up north, but I'll keep it nameless, 20% of the incoming class takes some kind of antidepressant. The commercials for these drugs all work the same way. A troubled child, parent, or employee, failing at work, failing at school, growing more distant from loved ones. Then a drug that promises, as one slogan puts it, to reveal the real you. And then, within this 30-second span, a sudden transformation, a new life of smiles, friends, and productivity. Without question, such drugs are needed by many individuals who suffer from terrible mental illnesses, illnesses rooted in chemical problems in the brain that only medication can ameliorate. For such people, the truly sick, such drugs are a godsend. And no doubt the strategy of selling these drugs is the same as selling any other product, convincing people that they are inadequate as they are, yet very, very close to perfection making people feel sick and desperate only to discover that all they need is some liberating product. Now surely something deeper is at work here when it is the inadequacy of the psyche itself and when the liberation involves, in part at least, a new identity altogether. The real questions about the rise of psychotropic drugs go beyond the present inquiry. Questions about why so many people feel so depressed why they believe only medication can help them, and who they really are once they start taking these mood-altering drugs and start forming new relationships that depend on continuing to take these mood-altering drugs. I can only note here the strangeness of this, of this new marketing of dependence and the significance of coming to believe that life's dilemmas are fundamentally problems of brain chemistry, only solvable by medication. Perhaps it will also mean believing in the inverse, 
that life's highest possibilities are also matters of chemistry, only achievable with medication. This surely seems to be the case these days among many professional athletes. Now, in a certain sense, of course, this is all true. We live as given bodies with drives that we do not fully control and cannot fully explain and limits that come with our particular set of DNA. But we also live, or have long lived, with the belief that we are more than our chemicals and that our choices, joys, and miseries are more than inexplicable neuroactivity and that there is a real difference between what is real and what is induced. Perhaps the deepest problem with such drugs, taken, say, by a widow to ease the pain of her mourning or after 9-11 to calm one's sense of horror, is that they will confound, not restore, our sense of the world as it really is. To sleep easily after 9-11 or rest easily after the death of a beloved spouse is to live in a world of fantasy. It is to seek salvation by no longer being human. Final example I call the embryo and the coffee grind. Now this example is somewhat more futuristic, but not entirely so. Depending on where the science takes us, it is not too far-fetched to imagine that human embryos will one day be valuable commodities, harvested routinely as a source of stem cells. Embryo destruction for research purposes is already commonplace, and scientists are already at work exploring methods that would allow us to produce eggs artificially, thus eliminating the only barrier to embryo production on an industrial scale. And no doubt such embryos, one way or another, will trade in the market like any other commodity, perhaps even on the commodities exchange. Now, of course, I probably exaggerate, but it is an exaggeration with a point. What the market does, not just to embryos, but to other things, is veil the meaning of what it uses so that everything can be used more efficiently. It tames the remarkable and makes it seem normal, like everything else. It reduces each commodity to measurable data, where what matters is not the different things in themselves, but the differential movements on the chart. Coffee grinds up, embryos down, computer parts up, body parts down, Viagra up, Paxil down. Even the individual who is troubled by this prospect, prospect, who still wonders whether a human embryo deserves more respect than a natural resource, will find it hard not to participate. Will he really reject embryo therapies that might save his child? Will he leave his job at the insurance company that covers such medicine? Will he sell the mutual fund that buys shares in an embryo production company? Now, we should not forget that the goal of such commerce and such research is deeply humanitarian. The pursuit of health for the sick, the very good that modern societies most desire. But the means are, at least arguably, a kind of cannibalism. If a cannibalism not obvious to the eye, and thus without a visceral repugnance. But the violation is no less real for being so unobvious, and it is only possible because we now take for granted a truly remarkable thing. The power to initiate human life outside the body. The power to see and to hold what was once left shrouded in mystery. And this, I think, is what we should most fear about biotechnology in the spirit of capitalism. That in the desire for some kind of worldly salvation, a salvation of the flesh, we will profane the sacred, 
with modern commerce greasing the skids. Now, such a critique is not meant as an active ingratitude for the society we have or silly blindness to the genuine virtues of progress. I can imagine no better place to live today than America, even with all its warts. At the same time, however, we must face up to the fact that American commerce is occasionally a problem, the capitalism the body most especially. Perhaps ironically, it is the friends of commerce, political conservatives, who will most likely see the profaning power of commerce. Critics on the left mostly attack capitalism because they want more of the very things that capitalism creates, but they believe that big business is keeping these things from little America. But conservatives realize that the deeper problem with commerce is that it creates many things we should not create in the first place, and it may ask us to do many things we should not do at all. As yet, however, such conservatives have no clear economic philosophy to deal with this dilemma. So for now, all we can do is hope. Hope that individuals maintain some lines they will not cross, some products they will not buy, some companies they will not invest in. And all we can do is ponder just how entangled American greatness, American virtue, and American decadence truly are remaining forever thankful for our economic success, forever true to the responsibilities that our power imposes, and forever seeking the forgiveness that American capitalism may one day require. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, the uh, floor is open for questions. It's our uh, custom and practice in the Madison program to reserve the first part uh, for uh, student questions. So if we have any student questions, whether you're a Princeton student or a high school student or a graduate student, uh, the floor is yours now. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, not forever hold your peace. You can come in. If you can't think of a question now, but you want to ask one in the general session, you can. Are there any student questions? If not, then the floor is... uh, is open. Uh, yeah, Mike Ross. In the first of your uh, moral tales concerning the market and donor eggs, uh, you seem to, in addition to implicating the market, you also seem to, as I recall, you implicate the desire of the, the buying parents to have a child who's as much an issue, the issue of their body as possible, and to implicate the donor for not considering the implications of the fact that the egg being donated is the fruit of her ovaries, if not the fruit of her womb. But how is that really different than adoption the way it happens most of the time in which, say, a married couple adopts a child just born to a woman who hadn't planned on the pregnancy? What's really different aside from the market? Well, I think the difference is that the reason people seek IVF in the first place is that people have a deep longing, I think, for children of their own. There's something humanly powerful I'm about this desire. I'm very sensitive. No, no, no. Well, I'm not. Look, adoption is a wonderful thing. And in many ways, what it does is it redeems a tragic situation, right, where there's a child who was left or abandoned or couldn't be cared for for some reason by his or her biological parents. 
What I was trying to point out with the example is that IVF comes into existence for a reason, right? It comes into existence to answer this deep human desire to allow people who are infertile to have children of their own, flesh of their flesh. But what it does for the first time is create situations where this can actually be confounded, right? Where you can actually carry another couple's embryo or where you can mix a husband's sperm with a donor's egg. And I think what's important, or at least worth reflecting on a bit about the market translation, is the market transaction rather, is that it tries to answer this deep human desire, but it can only do it by finding someone who doesn't possess it. Um, now you could say that we all have sort of subjective value, that some people value tuition money more than any kind of connection with children that are genetically related to them, that are going to look in part like them. Um, but I think the market hides something deeply significant in a very profound way. Mike, you want to follow up? No, I want to. I'm just not sure how. Okay. Well, <laughs> you can come back and thank you later. Uh, the, the, were there other, uh, other hands? Uh, yeah, yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. uh, I just read an article about that in the 1990s that these, um, I don't know whether it has anything to do with um, I hope you made it, um, that some of these children who got vac vaccinations early um, became autistic. I guess you're familiar with all that? I've heard something about this. I can't say I... This article that, and the trouble is I'm not a scientist, so I can't exactly pronounce the, the thing that was in it, but anyway, it was mercury. FEMA something, FEMA something. It's mercury. Well, anyway, it's mercury. And that it was really having a terrible I've heard something about it, but I don't know anything about it to speak. And it's just to speak terrible. about it. And this article I just read yesterday started it said 1991. Luckily, my my grandchildren got bad, uh, had their well, they almost grow up. So. Well, I wish I could be more helpful. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, uh, could I ask one more? Oh, sure. Yeah. Part, um, what about the stem cells for? women over 50 that might want their own children. I heard something about that a couple of days ago. It has something to do with STEM. I'm not sure. Stem cell I'm not sure, I guess, what you mean. Are you familiar you know with that? Okay. I heard over the radio about a few days ago. Well, there is a phenomenon of trying to enable postmenopausal women to give birth. No, that that, but I, I don't know anything about the use of stem cell based methods. Mr. Tompkin? I think the closer question to where you're going to. Uh, the question on adoption, yeah. Um, in your thing of like cannibalism, you're saying, okay, we're taking the IFF, we're, we're actually making somebody to get destroyed. Right now. I think in the New Jersey area, in the case of Baby F, and then the commercial area, where a life was created. But it was created pursuant to a contract, and then the baby successfully delivered, and they successfully adopted. Where do you see a moral dilemma there, if any, as opposed to the economic capitalism you're talking about? That might be a closer question. Where the child, in other words, is kind of made to order. In other words, it's not a situation where someone finds herself pregnant and uh, adopts, and adopts out. out. Versus his example of the cannibalism aspect of, of just, you know, I'm just going to create, I'm going to give this thing away. ABM was a married death whitehead? Right. Do, do you know what? I know a little bit about it. Um, I, I guess 
part of what I'm trying to do, do is recover a sense that in vitro fertilization itself is something remarkable. It now it seems totally normal. It's these kinds of solicitations in the mail, companies listing their prices. Um, but all the different capacities, whether it's surrogacy, whether it's screening a child to be a tissue donor for another child who is sick, whether it's screening a child to be one sex or another, all these powers are only possible because we can create and initiate life outside the body. We can hold it, study it, manipulate it, um, analyze it, uh, and are only going to be able to do so more as our genetic knowledge increases. Um, I think there's something a little puzzling about carrying another person's child, um, just as I think there's something puzzling about giving one's gametes away so that someone else can have a child that is genetically related to you. Mike, do you want to come? Yeah, yeah. I realize, let me tell a short story. Somebody who was very dear to me uh, needed a kidney transplant last year. Lots of people wanted to help him because none of us had a match. And, you know, there would have been no moral program if any one of us had donated one of our kidneys to this wonderful man. On the contrary, people would have right. I mean, right, even though we would have left ourselves with one kidney. And kidneys are not renewable resources. On the other hand, renewable isn't quite the right word for ova. But ova, donor eggs, if not used, are flushed by the body. Right, but the and, that, and I really want to focus. Are you really, really? Is it is it the market aspect? Would you be? Would you have the same ethical concerns if there were double-blind donation, for example? No, it's not simply the market aspect. I think what the market transaction can do and often does is it hides some of the puzzling moral questions that we face. Uh, but I think. Giving an organ and giving an egg are very different because in the case of the egg, there's a child that is born. And so we're left with a question yes. such as, if I donate an egg, let's say that there's no money involved. Let's just say I'm a college student and out of the goodness of my own heart, I get a letter from some couple that's infertile and needs my egg and I decide to give it away. What is a normal human relationship between that donor and the child who has a biological connection with that person. What's and the I don't relationship think, that my son's birth parents have with him? Well, there's a difference, I think, in redeeming a situation where a child has no parents to raise him and making a preemptive decision to give away one's gametes or to sell one's gametes right, to produce a child that you deliberately intend to have no relationship with. It's just, I think, a different situation. Um, and It does sound like the parallel is what Mr. Tomicky suggested, that you, it, it sounds like it's pretty easy to distinguish the case you're describing from the normal adoption case, but a lot more difficult to distinguish if you would want to distinguish that case from the baby, the baby M case. But then it's interesting because the baby M case aroused a moral debate precisely because people did think that it was something quite different from ordinary adoption because she was preemptively no, no agreeing to give up a relationship with her child. That was complicated because there was a market dimension, right. because it was a contract. And then, of course, what actually made the case a case was at the end of the day, she didn't want to give up the child. Right. And the question was whether the contract was. Which is very common. Yeah. Right. A, lot of, a lot of the worries with the market issues is that you're going to have people 
who otherwise wouldn't want to do this thing, who are seduced by the money and do something they don't want to do. And I don't really We're find that ultimately work. to be a very compelling argument. It's real, and this happens all the time. It happens with organs. Wealthy people go to third yeah. world countries and try to buy people's organs. It happens with access to medical care. Right. No, I agree. Um, what I think the market can do, and the criticisms of the market can do, is, is cover up the deeper human question of doing these things at all, and what is the meaning of doing them. Look, I'm not saying we should do it or we shouldn't do it. I'm trying to understand what is the significance of it, and would it be normal if, if your college-age child came home to you and said, you know, I met this very nice and fertile couple. I'd really like to give them one of my eggs. I don't need the money. We're from a wealthy family. I would suspect most parents would be a little perplexed, at least at first, um, certainly more perplexed than in the organ case. So I think even if a child came home and said, you know, I read this story in the paper about someone who needs an organ and I'm going to go under the knife and donate it, it is a kind of, in one sense, angelic act and I think certainly more humanly intelligible and noble than giving one's egg away. But at the same time, there's a certain kind of inhumanity to it as well, um, to to find a stranger who you're willing to give one of your organs to. It's certainly different than trying to save a loved one. There's a kind of love that's intelligible between siblings that is not intelligible if someone walks in off the street. And that's why people who want to donate live organs off the street, they go through a serious battery of psychological tests to decide whether they're doing this because they're crazy. I think I would be, if I were the, the parent and the child came home and I said, I would be interested in the future baby as my grandchild. I would wonder exactly where my grandchild is, where my grand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you, uh, sir, you. Uh, one yeah. Well, I'm a little perplexed in the fact that we debate this issue of embryologists and IVF and all that very right? strongly. We feel life is involved in it. I accept that all that discussion. But how do we relate that to the same analogy when you take the case of a kidney transplant? Somebody is dying. There is a life involved. If the person doesn't get a kidney, the person will potentially die. The person could be very near and dear to me, and I would like that person to really have a kidney. I'm not a good match. I may go out, pay somebody, get a good match. But God forbid, or we have heard of this instance in last Latin America where people are drugged, their kidney is stolen from their hotel rooms overnight, and they're left with a bandage and one kidney missing. Those cases were also published. And those kidneys are sold in the black market in the world. There's a big black market of organs going around. And that kidney eventually definitely does save a life. It's taken out of a person unknowingly. The person doesn't even get the money. But the kidney does still save a life of somebody. How do we relate that debate of kidneys or organs, whatever you can call any other organ, versus discussion or debate on an embryo which is now creating a life? I understand this embryo is creating a new life, whereas in an organ transplant, we are saving an existing life. But it's still alive. And the life is as near or dear to somebody who is going to have a baby or somebody who is going to live or die by not having that organ. It's a very good question. Let me try to, a couple of different answers to it. I think first we all begin with the premise that if someone's dying because they need a kidney, we all want to do everything that we morally can do to save that person. Right. Um, but we also recognize that there are some things we clearly couldn't do, even if our own loved one and even if we removed by a kind of passion of the furies to try to save that person, we couldn't take another innocent life to save that person. Not only that, we couldn't take another innocent life and give the heart to one person and the kidney to another person and the liver to another person. There are just some lines we can't cross. And the question in the embryo debate is, is this more like an organ, um, a piece of a whole, 
Or is the embryo a nascent whole and therefore an innocent life that we can't take? Second, and I just ask it a question, do we have a moral obligation to give organs to those who need them? Um, I don't have a clear answer to that question. Um, but clearly there are a lot of people who need them. We're always hearing about the organ crisis. There are a lot of us running around with extra kidneys who it most likely would be inconvenienced for a month or so or a couple weeks by giving it away. Do we have a moral obligation to save that dying person? Or are there limits to human love such that to save that person is to engage in a kind of love that's unintelligible? On the one hand, sort of angelic. On the other hand, sort of inhuman. Final just sort of observation is that we hear about the organ shortage and crisis, and no doubt it is a kind of crisis, right? People are dying from things that could be saved if only someone else died in a way that made an organ available for them. But we also need to recognize that it's a crisis that is the fruit of progress, right? 50 years ago, these people who were dying would have had no chance. And every year, year after year after year, the number of people that are saved with organ transplantation-based medicine is going up. So what looks like a crisis on the one hand, because there are lists of people that can't get organs, from a different perspective looks like gradual progress. And so we need to step back sometimes, I think, and recognize that some crises are the crises of progress, and they're not less real for being so. The anguish of someone suffering and dying or the anguish of their family is not less real. But at the, same, at the same time, these people aren't dying from an organ shortage. They're dying from the same human diseases that people have died from forever and will die from <laughs> for a long time ahead. So it's a very good question. It raises a lot of the deepest questions, I think, in bioethics, and uh, that's my best quick stab at it. When I was in uh, law school, I don't know how we got to talking about this in contracts class, but we did, and my <laughs> professor put the question to us. Um, now, you guys all think it would be okay, it was okay, to conscript young men at 18 years old, take some of them, like my father, right out of high school, and send them to fight on the beaches of Normandy, where it was certain that a great many of them would be killed in order to stop the Nazis. And uh, you all agree with that, and almost everybody, a few hardcore libertarians held out, but... Almost everybody agreed with that. And then, and then he said, okay, well then, uh, what, since everybody who has two kidneys has one extra, and there are people who could be saved, perhaps large number of people, numbers of people who could be saved, could you simply require people by law to give up a kidney? How many people would be for that? And of course, only a couple of hands out of 140 in our section went up, and, and, and then he demanded for us to explain the difference between the two cases, which turns out to be a lot harder than any of us, I think, thought. The best answer, if people want to try to sort that through, is an essay by Hans Jonas called Philosophical Experimentation with Human Subjects on the Question of Conscription. There you go. Uh, Mr. Hannon. A number of the issues that you've raised inevitably will run into some public policy or political decision-making. And I'm wondering if you can recite instances such as your attendance here, which is a form of your raising the issues. Uh, you're aware of other educational institutions doing this for leadership, uh, future commercial leaders who are going to have to deal with some of these ethical and moral issues. Well, bioethics has become a gigantic field. It's a sort of profession uh, with thousands of little bioethics specialists around, many of them doing very good work, I should say, uh, some of them doing not so good work. Um, but I think What's happened is that it's become such a specialized field um, 
that it makes two kinds of errors, and this will get to your question. One is that it shoots too low, by which I mean it has abandoned some of the deeper questions of human dignity and human nature and the human character that I think these bioethics issues inevitably raise. But on the other hand, it shoots too high in the sense that it believes it's above normal democratic politics, that it can kind of come down from the heavens with its proposals and prescriptions. Um, when in fact real people in the real world argue about these things and you can't always impose an ideal vision on normal human beings. And so I think there's a much greater need than there is now for a kind of philosophically and politically serious bioethics, one that takes both the way normal people argue about these things, the way they argue about them in the states, the way they argue about them in Congress, um, the way the arguments change often quickly and unexpectedly on the one hand, but a political bioethics that begins by taking seriously these deeper first human questions, um, which are not often very easy to answer. Um, there are people doing this. The President's Council on Bioethics right now is the greatest example. Unfortunately, it won't be here forever. Uh, while he's made the best case against immortality, uh, he might be the best case for immortality is Leon Cass, uh, who's done wonderful work there. Um, there's our little center in Washington, this new journal that we're doing. So there are people now stirring about to try to do this, but not enough and not always at the highest level. Students are allowed to ask questions still, Andrew. Is that one? Yeah, yeah there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a question. I guess I was just a little unclear about um, what you said about Mike Bidka. Uh, oh, Mike Bidka. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to get back from embryos to Mike Bidka. Go ahead. Yeah, just please don't be too clear about it. Yeah. Um, I just wasn't sure exactly. I know you said, like, it's interesting to think of it as if he's revealing his dependence in those commercials. But I wasn't sure exactly how that could be seen as, like, a negative for society. I thought you were sort of implying that. Yeah, look, I don't want to begrudge Mike Ditka his uh, potency, but um, the fact is, at least my normal initial reaction to this is to see it as kind of pathetic. Right, not so much the taking of the drug, but the going on and hawking it in terms of stay in the game and football, and to be so publicly sort of willing that Bob Dole did this, and it was also kind of pathetic. Um, and the question is why, and that's what I was trying to think through. And I think the answer, and I try to get at this with the story of Noah and his sons, is that our elders should have a kind of majesty before us, a kind. They're the sort of originators of our own being, they should be looked up to and revered, and I think it becomes harder to revere Mike Ditka, the, you know, the tough guy, he skits about it in Saturday Night Live, um, now that he's sort of gone on and made a kind of mockery of his own failing body. Um, and I think what, you, what it is, is it's both the loss of pride and the loss of shame at the same time, right? On the one hand, you're making something that should be a very private matter, you know, sort of matters of intimacy, very, very public. Um, and so there's, I'd say, inadequate shame. You've lifted up the veil. On the other hand, he's given up a certain kind of proper pride, right? I'd rather have a Mike Ditka who uh, maybe has lost certain powers but still has a kind of majesty. I don't really care that much about Mike Ditka, but I use it as an example. Um, a better example is Noah, right? Um, who could command the reverence of his children. Um, and so I think that's what is happening. You have the kind of shaming of the father, right? On the one hand, the father's willing to actively go out and be shamed, and I think that's an insight into maybe a 
smallness in his own soul, or maybe just being misguided. But on the other hand, he puts his children in a situation where they can't help but shame him, right? Because they see the father's dependence and nakedness. The majesty is lost. And I think a lot of the dilemmas of the commerce of the body, as I've called it, um, it evokes in part actually the theology of the body, which is a new turn in Catholic thinking, um, which Robbie can explain much better than I can. Um, but the point is that I think it is this loss of pride and shame at the same time that is essential to actually understanding what's happening with biotechnology, right? The critique of biotech from those who worry about it is both that people are not gods and people are not beasts, right? And the same technologies both seem to promise to make us like gods, but they make us more like animals, right? The, the, the sportsman who shoots up in public with his steroids before swinging the bat would be kind of embarrassed. He's doing it in the name of his own excellence and power and grandeur. But what he does is he shows himself to be a dependent beast, no different in a certain way than the animals that we breed. Um, and so what we're trying to do here is both preserve shame and pride um, and to puzzle through those instances where biotechnology might compromise them. Your hand up. Then I want to reserve a question for myself, and then we'll get to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Often submitting biotech debates are the scientific arguments and the religious arguments for where the line back is. It doesn't always have conflict, but often does. And in the past, this is uh, one of the greatest influences on legislation is where the balance lies between which arguments went out. For example, the stem cells, when the funding was limited, um, no government funding for stem cell research, except for stop lines a couple of years ago, is more the religious side that went out. How do you see the balance shifting as the biotechnology progress emerges? I'm not sure. Do people hear the question? No. Now, Derek, could you give a brief comment? Yeah, the question was a very good one, which was about the relationship between science and religion and the debates that we often seem to have between science and religion as we try to puzzle through these bioethics issues. You use the example of stem cells and embryo research. Um, both, I think, an effort to try to understand the significance of this debate um, and this occasional clash, um, but also maybe who's winning and where it's heading. Um, the country is divided. Um, America has right its red states and its blue states. Um, it's uh, the nation of progress and the nation of piety. Um, those two things are not always in conflict, but they sometimes seem to be. Um, I think in the embryo research debate, what we actually see is a debate about the meaning of reason itself, right? Uh, Robbie, better than anyone, could sit here and rigorously explain to you why an embryo is one of us by showing rationally the continuity of the stages of life. And a scientist could very rationally show you pictures on the slides and explain to you all the different powers that an embryo has. Now, if we think right, that all human beings are created equal, um, I think Robbie gets the better of the argument. I think it's very hard to show why you can draw a line in one place and eliminate early embryos but include later stage fetuses and the rest of us. But what's going to happen someday or what might happen someday is that you have to believe so much in that reason that you're willing to not use a therapy that would be based with an embryo and might save you, right? And so let's say hypothetically that therapeutic cloning works, that you could clone a little embryo of say your child and use that to save a child who is dying. Now I think Rami's reason is pretty compelling um, and it doesn't require religious premises at all, 
But I actually think it takes a kind of deep faith to live the consequences of his arguments. Um, and I think that's part of what's at issue here, right? It's not that science or religion, it's not that science is the party of reason and religion is the party of non-reason. It's that reasoning in the bioethics issues often seems to call for us to do some things that are pretty tough. And a lot of the hardest things in life, especially those that involve courage, that involve facing mortality with a kind of stoicism, um, for most people, for many people, that strength comes from piety, not for everyone. Some people are just stoic and sort of oppressive and have no need or use or just don't believe in the truths of religion. Uh, but uh, I think the fact of the matter is that even though one can make a rational argument about why embryos are one of us, most people who actually believe that are religious. Um, and it's because they have some sense that to believe that means you're going to have to live with its consequences. Um, that some diseases we might otherwise have cured will not be cured. Um, and that, I think that's at least one way to try to get at your question. In terms of where the politics are going, I think we'll continue to be divided. I don't see any great breakthrough. Um, one side nudges ahead, the other side nudges ahead, but uh, the culture is uh, deeply split on these kinds of issues. I wanted to ask my question, and, and that answer, Eric, is a good lead-in uh, to it, because it's about uh, the capacity for the market to uh, make it difficult for people to abstain from what's to their economic uh, advantage. Uh, Bill Bennett and Joe Lieberman will occasionally have some fun trying to make a point by uh, going into a, buying a few shares of stock, going into a corporate boardroom, and confronting the, uh, the conservatively dressed and well-mannered members of the board and management of a company with the outrageously trashy, obscene lyrics of songs that their music division is putting out and, and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, beer companies with their ads, uh, things that they wouldn't let their children watch, uh, things that, uh, that they wouldn't want to reveal to their wives that they're responsible for and so forth and so on. But the reality is that they don't get, Bennett and Lieberman actually don't get very far with this, it, it, there's an initial blast of publicity, but then the companies with the well-dressed corporate executives, you know, well-mannered, well-educated, and the whole thing, go back to doing what they're doing. I mean, there's, it's, it's clear now even that the $8 billion porn industry is not just an industry on the margins with the Bob Guccione's and kind of outlaw characters like that. It's now deeply uh, integrated into the American corporate structure so that otherwise respectable people are actually involved in companies that are profiting from it and are just looking the other way if, uh, if that. I mean, is the message in that that, 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 that there is just no insulating uh, moral conviction from the market, that in the long run the market is just going to erode it? I, I think it's going to be very hard. Um, Look, conservatives have a problem on this issue. Um, they recognize that there are some things in the culture that they don't like. Um, many of the things in the culture they don't like are for sale um, and are deeply connected to America's economic prosperity. Um, Britney Spears' albums fund the war in Iraq, right? Uh, some indirect way. Um, 
And the fact of the matter is it'll be American movies as much as American constitutionalism that will make these places, if we succeed, more modern. Um, liberation has many meanings. And so conservatives have a problem. They have all these think tanks filled with these wonderful cultural critics who despair about the culture um, and uh, sort of idealize the American founding, and rightfully so. Um, but on the other hand, they're filled with economists who can only think in market terms and not beyond them, um, who basically live by the gospel of subjective value, that the only things that matter are what people afford value, and the market adjudicates that in a pretty good way. Um, and so I think conservatives have a big project ahead to see if they can come up with some kind of an economic philosophy that doesn't abandon the goods of the market and that doesn't wreck the American economy, basically, um, but at the same time tries to deal with the question, I think, that you raise. And right now, all I can offer is a combination of sort of heroism and realism, right? That on the one hand, people should have some kind of lines that they won't cross, hard as it is to sustain. Um, that, you know, there should be certain things that they won't do, and the heroism comes in the fact that it'll often cost them something severe to do it. Maybe it means leaving their job or moving into a less prosperous investment. Um, and so you hope that some people still have that kind of heroic capacity. On the other hand, we need a kind of realism. The fact of the matter is um, people will have to make some kind of peace with American decadence um, because American power depends upon it, um, the American economy depends upon it, providing for one's family depends upon it, and we're just going to have to kind of live with that tension. There's no simple answer. Um, and in the meantime, try to build you know, little aisles of civility in places, whether religious aisles or, or other kinds of aisles. But, I don't see, at least yet, any kind of major institutional solution to this problem, though I wish conservative economists would start taking it more seriously. I just, um, how do you see the role of the government actually taking shape? And do you see that role in effect? And I'll, I'll use a different example, I guess, just me personally. I mean, creating the actual situation you want to avoid. I mean, if you look at Roe versus Wade in the abortion issue, you know, probably most people would think, you know, aborting a child just naturally themselves having to do it, probably wouldn't do it or, you know, think of it as a bad thing, but once the government attempts to take a role and decide things about people's lives, it creates a problem, right? So now people that maybe personally are against an issue switch to the other side, specifically to avoid having the government be involved. I mean, I guess, how do you see, do you believe the government should decide this for the people, or should other institutions such as bio or, you know, industry institutions solve this for America? Yeah, well, I think government should be involved, and, and I think they should be involved in the way they are best involved, which is through the deliberative arguments of the people's representatives, right? The problem with Roe v. Wade is that people's representatives weren't able to argue and come to some kind of tolerable situation. And the fact is, if the people are left to argue, abortion in most places would still be legal today, but it would probably be much more limited than it is, and it might be illegal in a handful of states. Um, that's my own speculation, anyway. But on the question of self-government and commerce, uh, self-government and biotechnology, rather, uh, look, these are questions that affect all of us. They're not we shouldn't be ruled by the scientists, right? The things that the scientists create or want to do, the kinds of researches they want to undertake, 
are things that affect the character and society of the country as a whole. And the country as a whole should debate and argue about these things. Adam Smith himself knew that governments would be very bad at intervening in the economy. When they tried to make the economy work better, they would make it worse. And he laid this out in a way that's still pretty compelling. Um, but he also recognizes, recognized that there were particular areas of life, including areas related to the culture, where the government had to be involved. Um, and so I'm a big defender of self-government in this area. I think there are certain kinds of things that are just so abhorrent that we do try to ban them. There are other kinds of things that are much more puzzling, and we need to try to sort them out and maybe come up with some kind of regulatory mechanism. Um, but there's a danger in that, too. There's a difference between regulation and self-government. In some ways, they're the opposite, right? Regulation says, okay, we're going to just put this in some agency, and the bureaucrats are going to do it. Self-government means that the people are constantly having to reassess, make arguments, write letters to their representatives, and, and try to come up with the best kinds of public policies on these very morally profound and morally complicated answers. So I'm for self-government, ambivalent about regulation, and think the courts have done a lot of great havoc. Can I ask you a follow-up? Follow -up? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, how do you see, is the, is the United States, in your opinion, ahead or behind sort of in the international arena? I mean, whatever we decide to do, and has happened already, someone can just go to Guam or, you know, wherever else and, and do what we forbid. So the, the question is, is biotech regulatable at all? because right. it's, it's always possible to go offshore. I mean, but can, can, can we realistically impose our will on this issue as well as others? Well, there are two issues there. Is it right, can we regulate it at all? And how does our regulation look when compared to other countries? I think that's right with the two dimensions of your question. Um, the first one is, look, there are all kinds of horrible things that other countries do that we shouldn't do. China does all kinds of terrible things. They harvest organs from political prisoners. We don't tolerate that. There are countries that buy and sell organs. We don't allow that. I was at the University of Chicago in a debate with uh, Gary Becker, the great free market economist. Um, and he was making the case for organ markets. And he gave as an example Iran, that great bastion of free enterprise, <laughs> as a country that had organ markets. And so I was less sort of puzzling. You know, here's uh, the heir of Hayek and Adam Smith now saying that America should follow the example of Iran. So look, I think America can still govern on these issues no matter what other countries do, but that said, a lot of these things will go ahead. South Korea just cloned the first human embryos. On us versus other countries, it's just a huge mix. Canada just passed a whole bunch of regulations that are much more strict than we have here. Britain has a, a, a huge regulatory system and it stops some things that we might want to stop. On the other hand, it explicitly endorses a lot of things that we wouldn't want to explicitly endorse. And then the countries are all over the place. Um, What's interesting is that Germany and uh, France are great allies in Iraq, <laughs> uh, our great opponents in Iraq, um, are closer to us on a lot of these bioethics issues, whereas Britain, our great ally, is to the opposite. So it's just a puzzling mess. Did, ma'am, was your hand up? Did I overlook you? Um, yeah, I guess I could ask my question. Sure, go right ahead. Along the lines of these other questions, but I was wondering about genetic testing and the implications of being able to choose whether or not to have a child that is disabled, and if it could actually eradicate disabled people at all. Like, you know, what would the implications of that be? Well, I think the implications are deeply significant. This is something that we faced for a number of years with the question of prenatal screening and amniocentesis and abortion. 
Um, what's new um, is that where prenatal screening allows us to select against a child, say against a diseased child, um, some of these new technologies may allow us to select for certain kinds of children. Um, and so we're choosing the ones we want as opposed to eliminating the ones that we don't want. And I think the implication is, is deep. I mean, what is the lesson to the country as a whole when we say that this life, this child, you know, in the womb with Down syndrome is, is better off not being alive at all? That sends a kind of message to people who are alive today with Down syndrome. And I think it kind of cheapens our commitment to equality um, by basically saying there are some, you know, disorders or diseases that it's just better that you don't exist. Um, and so I think the implications are huge and significant, um, and we've been puzzling through this for a lot of years. Yeah, uh, you, you've had your hand up, but you go ahead and you get the last question. You, man, you, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd like to say something on the, the regeneration of free market economists who, who, uh, who have no uh, moral stance. You're going to defend them? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Adam Smith as a, as a middle person between Voltaire and, and uh, the, the Weber and the Protestant ethics and... Uh, uh, I, I am a political economist. I've done a fair bit of uh, recent research on Richard Cobden, the apostle of free trade, Manchester economics. Yeah. And he, um, he was a follower of Smith, but I dare say he would be a person for our own age. In his globalization, he was the apostle of globalization, the first one, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my brief comment would be, and possibly question here, uh, there, there is a role in the tradition of free market philosophy the Apostle of Free Trade himself, was a follower of moral outrage at things that were outrageous. The Crimean War, for example, in the 1840s. He lost his seat in Parliament because he said we should say things that we're morally outraged at, and the public pressure will change things. Just like right now, teenage pregnancy is going down in the last five years uh, due to the fact that they realize they're going to pay child support the rest of their lives, and they can't be a welfare mom. And there was an outrage in the public cry. So. There's been a tradition um, that perhaps Gary Becker doesn't hold, but truly, I think some of the uh, greats besides Adam Smith, some more recent people in the free market, uh, they should be more well-known. Regeneration of Compton globalism and the, the ethical free market philosophist paradigm. Just wanted to say, another, put in a little plug for that kind of thinking, because it's, it's been around in history and uh, it's useful for today. Well, it's a it's a plug I certainly welcome. Look, I love free market economists. I'm, I'm not. Uh, most of them are very sensible and sane, and uh, many of their critics and the arguments that they put out would just wreck the American economy. And so, free market economists do a lot of good. But at the end of the day, uh, many of them, if not most of them, begin with a premise that I just don't think is right, which is that everything that has value uh, only has value because people afford it value. Um, and so they may have the highest moral standards in their own life, um, but they sometimes give ca capitalism more cheers than it deserves. Um, and so, look, 90% of the time, I suspect, I come down with the free market economists in terms of what to do with the economy. Um, but I'm a little bit, I guess, less cheerful probably than they are about certain things um, and a little bit less optimistic that the market left to its own devices will create the best society possible. That may be true. Um, 
because all the other alternatives are worse, but that's a different way of thinking, right? Seeing all the other alternatives as worse is different from celebrating something. And I think Smith was a much more sober person than many of his descendants. Um, maybe this new economic way of thinking that we need will come from rediscovering some of these thinkers, some of whom I know a little bit of and some of whom I don't. Um, and it may be that this is a dilemma we can't actually answer, we just have to sort of live with. But um, the fact that we need to think this through a little bit more, the relationship between morality and commerce, I think, is clear. Just one thing. It seems to me, I'm a political economist, that there's two great traditions of free market philosophy. One's utilitarianism. It's simply useful. They'll pay for organs. They'll pay to throw ones on their head, whatever. And the other is the natural law followers, the Aristotelian natural law versus the utilitarian. Bimesis was a utilitarian. Hayek was a natural law. There's two different frameworks, and the natural law people could come to answer some of these questions. I think they should be regenerated in the tradition of these. Not these, you know, there's two, there's two, uh, well, two we, 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 can, we can talk, uh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, we can talk after the break. I'm curious what guidance politically Hayek would give us on some of these bioethics issues. Um, I can't imagine he I, I suspect uh, Hayek would be against doing things like banning cloned embryo research. He'd be for allowing the market to adjudicate it. Um, I can't say that for certain, but uh, look, I'm a great admirer of Hayek. Hayek was a kind of Burkean, but at the end of the day, uh, I don't think that he gets us where we need to go in terms of puzzling through the moral character of commerce that has come down to us. And as it's shown most clear to us, I think, in some of these examples of what I call the commerce of the body. So uh, we should all read Hayek. We should admire him nine-tenths of the time, but we need to look elsewhere, too, I think. We should also all read The New Atlantis, uh, Eric Cohen's wonderful new journal of uh, technology and ethics and politics. Uh, I, I think it can be found online. Am I, am I right. right about that? The New Atlantis. Also subscribe at newatlantis.com. Uh, it's cheap, too. And before I uh, <laughs> invite you to watch, uh, it's cheap because we're subsidizing it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a public policy yeah. center. That's right. Keep, keep, keep working. It's not going to be cheap for us. <laughs> uh, before I invite you to uh, uh, join me in thanking Eric Cohen and joining us in a reception in his honor uh, just outside, let me uh, give you a quick word about our upcoming events in the Madison program. We have a terrific uh, conference. You're not going to want to miss this one. Friday and Saturday, April 2nd and 3rd. Uh, on leadership in the early republic, and it's a study of uh, five great American statesmen, and we have uh, scholars of the greatest eminence and distinction who will be coming to talk about George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. Those scholars include Gordon Wood, Alan Taylor, our own Barbara Oberg, Lance Banning, and uh, Joanne Freeman, with a summation uh, by Richard Brookheiser, who has been with us uh, before to discuss uh, his work on Washington and uh, on Hamilton. So again, Friday and Saturday, April 2nd and 3rd, a public conference on leadership in the early republic, and the subtitle is Reconsidering Five Key Founders. Those sessions will be in Dodd's Auditorium, Robertson Hall, beginning with Professor Gordon Wood's lecture on Friday evening on George Washington at 8 p.m., then continuing uh, Saturday morning and into the afternoon. On Monday, April the 12th, we have the next lecture uh, in the America's Founding and Future Series. It will be uh, given by Abigail Thernstrom of the Manhattan Institute on the question of the racial gap in academic achievement. Uh, Dr. Thernstrom is a noted scholar in the area and also a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. On Wednesday, April 14th, 
I'm delighted to say that we'll be having a presentation by our own Madison Program fellow, Joyce Malcolm, on her work on the founders, the American founders on judicial review. Wednesday, April 14th, uh, 12.30 p.m. Uh, in Bobes Hall, uh, which is on Prospect Avenue, and we will be serving a light lunch uh, at that event. Then finally, Monday, April 26th, we'll be uh, holding our fourth annual Walter F. Murphy Lecture on American Constitutionalism. And I'm delighted to say that the lecturer this year will be Professor Lee Epstein of uh, Washington uh, University School of Law. Professor Epstein is a leading political scientist in the field of public law, and she will be talking on a topic than uh, which you can get no more timely, the effect of war on the Supreme Court of the United States, the effect of war on the Supreme Court of the United States. Monday, April 26th, 8 p.m., uh, right here in, uh, in uh, the computer science uh, building. This, this room, Computer Science 104. So, a reception to follow. Please join me in thanking you.